Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, for the first time in months, I have a surplus of movies to talk about. Usually, towards the end of the week, as I'm getting ready to do my show, I struggle to get three movies to talk about these days. And the pandemic has made it a bit harder to do that, but now with movie theaters open, I have no problem going to movie theaters now. The only thing is, is time. So, as it turns out... The movies I'm going to review for you this week are going to be um, one theatrical film that came out this weekend and four others that came out this week. Actually, three came out this week, one came out last week, but it doesn't really matter to you. These movies are new to you and semi-new to me. The expiration date on new movies is very quick for me. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Belfast. Belfast is an Oscar contender. It hits all the right notes. It is a coming-of-age story about a young boy uh, who lives in Northern Ireland, specifically, as you might imagine from the title of the film, the city of Belfast, and his working-class family who experienced the tumultuous late 1960s and early 1970s. This takes place from approximately... August 1969 to March or April of 1970. It was written entirely by and directed by Kenneth Branagh. And I think it's safe to say this movie is biographical, if not semi-autobiographical. And while uh, Kenneth Branagh is not a stranger to directing, this is probably the most personal film that he has directed to date. Just to give you an idea of the movies he's directed... He, he, his um, forte as a director has usually been uh, Shakespearean films. He directed in and starred in Henry V back in 1989. He also did a semi-modern adaptation of Much Ado About Nothing in 1993. He did, um, he actually directed Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in 1994. Not Shakespearean, but obviously based on a popular British novel. He also directed another version of Hamlet in 1996, which actually put Mel Gibson's version of Hamlet back in 1990 to shame. And he also directed Love's Labor's Lost in 2000, As You Like It in 2006. And that's actually about it for Shakespearean films that he has directed. But he's certainly done a lot of films that are Shakespearean-like. For instance, he put a little bit of a Shakespeare twist to Cinderella back in 2015, uh, one of the better Disney uh, live-action remakes. And this is the first film he has directed since Artemis Fowl uh, from last year, which I unfortunately did not get to see. But Belfast is, as I said, written entirely by him, unlike most of his other films. Actually, I think all of his other films that he's directed and directed by him, as I said. And I did not know, actually, before I saw this movie that Kenneth Branagh is from the island of Ireland. I say the island of Ireland because that sounds a little clunky, but I say that because he's from Northern Ireland, so he's described oftentimes in the press as being British, And people from Northern Ireland are 
technically British because Northern Ireland, not mainland Ireland, is part of the United Kingdom. I could get into how, as an Irish American, I wish that Northern Ireland would secede from Great Britain and just become part of mainland Ireland. I do wish that, but realistically, that is unlikely to happen. Granted, the tensions between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland has, to my knowledge, died down considerably since the late 1960s, when it was so cataclysmic that the other problems that the world was having from the Vietnam War to the Cold War didn't really have very much of an effect on Ireland itself. Not the same way it did other nations all over the world, basically. And that's all taken into account in this film, which is mostly shot in black and white. The exceptions are the very beginning and the very end where they show Belfast today, and also the times where the young boy in the film, who is meant to be, I think, um, Kenneth Branagh as a child, his name in the film is Buddy, and he's played by Jude Hill, when he goes to the movies and he sees then-modern films, including but not limited to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and One Million Years B.C., So he goes into the movies with his family and or his friends, and while the rest of the theater is black and white, the images on the screen are in color. And I thought that was a very nice and poignant touch to such a film. So it is technically a coming-of-age film, although the term coming-of-age is used very loosely. A lot of times coming-of-age films describe people growing up or at at an apex in their life, sometimes as a kid, going from being a kid to a teenager around the age of 12 or 13, or other times when they're in their early 20s and they go from school, be it high school or college, to the real world, that's also coming of age. And while there's not that kind of age apex for Buddy in this film, it certainly is uh, coming of age in terms of the state of Ireland, or particularly Northern Ireland, in a big city like Belfast at the time. So Buddy, who's played here in a great performance by a young boy named Jude Hill, is living um, a a middle-class life with his mother and father, who are played by uh, Catriona Balfe and Jamie Dornan, respectively, and his older brother, Will, who's played by Louis McCaskey. And I believe all of these actors are Irish themselves. Although it is interesting to note that there are some actors in here who are not Irish and they play Irish people. For example, Buddy's grandmother, Granny, is played by Judy Dench. And actually, Judy Dench isn't in this movie as much as I thought she would be. Who's more um, apparent in this film is his grandfather, Pop, who's played by legendary Irish actor Ciaran Hines, who I think is one of the best actors in this film. Of course, Jude Hill, for such a young boy, carries this movie incredibly well. And there's nobody in this film who acts badly, not even Jamie Dornan. Now, I have been very hard on Jamie Dornan over the last few years. I've been so hard on him, in fact, that a couple of years ago, I think it was back in 2018, when the movie Fifty Shades Freed came out, 
I hate the Fifty Shades movies, all three of them. I think they were bad. Although I did take it easy on Dakota Johnson because I've seen her in other movies and she's been great in everything she's been in except for movies that start with the words Fifty Shades. I didn't see Jamie Dornan in as many films, but I did say during my review of Fifty Shades Freed that Jamie Dornan acts so badly in this movie as Christian Grey, he should never act again. And I've seen him in other films where he hasn't been nearly as bad as he's been in Fifty Shades, but he hasn't been great. Like the um, Taron Egerton, Jamie Foxx version of Robin Hood, for example. He was a supporting player in that film, and, and at best he was forgettable. But I was very impressed by Jamie Dornan in this movie as the father of Buddy. I think he did a great job playing Buddy's father, particularly during some of the uh, intense scenes, like when there are Catholic and Protestant riots right outside their family's house, and also when Jamie Dornan's character has to leave the family to go on business, and he makes the very reluctant decision to to leave Belfast and take his family along with him. Granted, it would have been even more tragic if he had left his family altogether, which did happen, of course, in real life in the story of Angela's Ashes, written by Frank McCord, and was also made into a decent film. But I do have to say that Belfast is actually much better than the film adaptation of Angela's Ashes, even though Angela's Ashes is an excellent memoir, probably one of the best that was written in the 20th century, and it came on the heels of the end of the 20th century. But I'm getting a little off topic here. There's a lot of things to love about this story. It's not centered around the uh, um, Catholic-Protestant feud in Ireland. It's In other words, it's not only what the story details, but undoubtedly it takes a large role in this movie about a nine-year-old boy. And while I missed the 60s and 70s, I'm somebody who was born in the 80s, there's certainly a lot of nostalgia mixed with poignancy in this film with which I actually identified. For example, I did not grow up in a war-torn area, but I grew up in an area that was not particularly... Actually, I grew up in a very poor town. But if my parents told me that I was leaving to go anywhere, even if we were going to live in Disney World, I would have been mortified. And there's actually one scene where it takes place on Christmas Day, 1969, where Ma and Pa tell Buddy that they're considering moving to England where it's safer and Buddy's reaction to leaving Belfast is both realistic and understandable. He basically throws a crying fit and it's, it's very easy to see why they would want to, why the family, the parents would want to leave Belfast, but it's also understandable why the kid wouldn't want to leave Belfast because he's nine or 10 years old and why would you want to leave the only place that you know? It's it's difficult for any child, regardless of where they live. So there is a lot of poignancy, as I said, to this movie. There's a lot of spirit. And I love the fact that it was filmed in black and white. It didn't necessarily have to be, but I thought it was a good 
non-pretentious stylish choice for Kenneth Branagh. And it might be my favorite movie directed by Kenneth Branagh to date because for a guy who is, or for a professional in the movie business, whose primary um, sense of being well-known is acting, as he's had a background with the Royal Shakespeare Company, Kenneth Branagh is one of the more exceptional directors who's also known primarily as an actor. And certainly he's had over 30 years experience doing that, not to mention a very keen sense of storytelling with his familiarity with Shakespeare. But I loved Belfast, and maybe it's not just because I'm Irish-American. Now, I've been to mainland Ireland, particularly southern Western Ireland, but I've never been to Northern Ireland, at least not yet. I haven't been to Belfast either, but I'd be willing to go, but not based on this movie entirely, but... I certainly can identify, especially with this film, being of Irish descent like I am, but that's not the only selling point for me. I think there's something that is universal about this film for anyone, regardless of whether or not you are of Irish descent, regardless of whether or not you grew up in Ireland or a place as cataclysmic as Ireland in the late 1960s. Or if you're just a human being, I think you will get something out of this film, which is why Belfast gets my rating of a knockout. It is great in just about every sense. The acting by just about everyone, and yes, that does include Jamie Dornan, is exceptional. Jude Hill and Ciaran Hines most especially stand out in this film as well. It's a really enjoyable piece, and it certainly has some moments of profound but certainly very familiar sadness. But I enjoyed it immensely. It may be a film I see again before the end of the year. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a Netflix original that probably should have been released in theaters, and the movie is called Red Notice. This is a dynamite action film starring Dwayne Johnson, Gal Gadot, and Ryan Reynolds. And Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot, I've enjoyed in just just about everything they're in. And even if, say, for example, Dwayne Johnson is in a movie that I didn't particularly like, I still don't necessarily fault Dwayne Johnson himself for being in the film, particularly a film like Jungle Cruise, for example, that came out earlier this year. Wasn't a great film, but I did enjoy Dwayne Johnson in it. Ryan Reynolds, on the other hand, I kind of feel the opposite about. For those of you who have been listening to my show, I'm probably harder on Ryan Reynolds than I am on Jamie Dornan, particularly because I have seen Ryan Reynolds act particularly well in other films, sometimes dramas like The Lady in Gold, other times in serviceable romantic comedies like The Proposal, for example. But lately, it seems like Ryan Reynolds, even though he's no stranger to being the first name on the marquee, is not particularly reliable as a leading actor. And the 
primary reason I say that is because he's been in two big films this year. One was The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, and the other one was Free Guy, both of which were lacking. And granted, it wasn't entirely Ryan Reynolds' fault that the film was lacking, but his smug persona and his need to insert what he thinks is a funny line every 10 seconds doesn't really help things very much. And in Red Notice, Ryan Reynolds does have that tendency to be funny when he's not necessarily supposed to be or needed to be. But I think working alongside Dwayne Johnson and the two of them actually working against Gal Gadot works better for Ryan Reynolds' smug persona than those other films where it's him basically by himself. And there are some times where Dwayne Johnson actually says something uh, to Ryan Reynolds after one of his smug deliveries that is deadpan and is supposed to be a straight man's role, uh, line, but it actually ends up being really funny. So anyway, about Red Notice. Red Notice is about an Interpol agent who is played by Dwayne Johnson who tracks down the world's most wanted art thief. Let me be a little bit more specific in this description. So... 2,000 years ago, Mark Antony, the Mark Antony, gifted Cleopatra three bejeweled eggs as a wedding gift, symbolizing his devotion. And throughout the years, the eggs were lost and separated until one of them was discovered, of all places, by a farmer in 1907. Now, is this a true story? I don't think that really matters. I don't know whether or not it is, but it does make for a good story for this film. But eventually the two out of the three eggs were rediscovered and the third was lost. So present day 2021 special agent, John Hartley played by Dwayne Johnson, who is a criminal profiler for the FBI is is assigned to assist Interpol agent Yuvashi Das, who's played um, in a very noticeable supporting role by Ruti, excuse me, Ritu Arya to track down the theft of one of these eggs kept on display at a museum in Rome. And who is the thief of this egg? It turns out to be a very sophisticated art thief named Nolan Booth, who's played by Ryan Reynolds, who is not a small-time thief, but he certainly act like one. And I do think that some of his one-liners undermines how good a thief he is. And very much like probably the worst parts of Deadpool, there were times where Ryan Reynolds wisecracked and I just wanted to say, Ryan, enough already. (laughs) I mean, I, I know that some people do find Ryan Reynolds to be funny and charming, I think he can be funny and charming when he doesn't try so hard to be that way. And I don't think he trusts his acting instincts. That, of course, is my opinion, and this show is all about my opinion. But as it turns out, John Hartley, Dwayne Johnson's character, has uh, finds out that not only is Nolan Booth the only one who's after these three eggs, there's also another art thief by the name of the Bishop, who's played by Gal Gadot. 
And when Gal Gadot gets into this movie, Ryan Reynolds becomes less grating and things become far more interesting. As a matter of fact, there are actually some great fight scenes between Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot that are so well choreographed and also so magnetic um, to see that it kind of makes me wonder why they needed Ryan Reynolds in the first place. And even more criminally, if you actually look at the roster of actors who are given top billing, Dwayne Johnson is given top billing over Gal Gadot, which is understandable because he's the central character, but Ryan Reynolds is given billing second to Dwayne Johnson, and I don't think that should have been the case. But either way, there's one egg that's been stolen from a museum. There's a second one that is kept by a fine arts dealer by the name of Soto Vase, who's played in a very rare non-comedic role by Chris Diamantopoulos. <laughs> very Greek name in and of itself, but Chris Diamantopoulos is a very good actor um, himself. And he shows actually some of his dramatic tops chops in this film. But there's also a third one that is lost to time, but the real apex of the story is when John Hartley, Nolan Booth, and the Bishop are fighting, sometimes together, sometimes um, against each other, to get this egg. And I do think that the third scene where they actually find the egg, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because that's part of the plot, is where the movie really starts to spark and goes beyond uh, its cliches. So why is the film called Red Notice? Well, Red Notice is an Interpol term that describes a criminal that's likely to be on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And when I think of Red Notice criminals, I think of people like James Whitey Bulger or Osama Bin Laden, I don't necessarily think of people who steal fine art. If somebody goes to the Louvre and steals the Mona Lisa, that doesn't really matter as much to me as much as somebody who shoots up a school or bombs a building or does any of those homegrown foreign or domestic terrorist acts that actually kill people. But Red Notice, I think, was... Good to a certain extent. I think it would have been better if it was just Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot with a strong supporting performance by Ritu Arya. And I think that it got better when they were trying to find that third egg, but uh, in that uh, remote location that I won't describe. But man, Ryan Reynolds, I think, really brought this film down. I don't think it brought it down so much that it, that it makes me dislike the movie, that I'll give it anything lower than a checkout, but I will give it a marginal checkout. But I do think that Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot are good action stars in and of themselves. Dwayne Johnson is not only a great action star, he's also authentically charismatic and funny. And it's obvious that Dwayne Johnson doesn't have to work at or at least he doesn't seem like he has to work at it as much as Ryan Reynolds does. But man, there were times where, for instance, they're doing death-defying stunts, Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds, and Ryan Reynolds talks so much that it makes me think that Dwayne Johnson should have just pushed him off the cliff or something to that effect. And rest assured, if Ryan Reynolds had gotten arrested or... <laughs> thrown into maximum security prison 
even more maximum than the one in which he's actually thrown in, it would have been better. But I really got tired of Ryan Reynolds' smarmy comments and some of his pop culture references, including when he's at one point whistling the theme to Indiana Jones, which only alerts the audience to what kind of movie this film is emulating. So I give Red Notice my rating of a marginal checkout. It's not so bad, especially with Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot in the leads, but man, Ryan Reynolds, I think, just, I think, didn't even swing here. I mean, granted, Ryan Reynolds must have worked hard to get to where he is, but it feels like even in action films where it looks like he's physically working hard, he's his smug persona undermines how good an actor he could be. And Red Notice is one of those times where he brings his otherwise charismatic and magnetic co-stars with him. And that really brings the entire film down, unfortunately. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Passing. This is a Netflix original film that came out on November 10th, 2021. So it is certainly brand new this week. And it is the directorial debut of actress Rebecca Hall. And Rebecca Hall, you might know from such movies as The Town, The Prestige, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, uh, Christine, and several other films. But this is the first thing that she has directed. A lot of times, there are directors who start out by directing short films, commercials, music videos. As far as I know, this is the only thing. It's not just... Rebecca Hall's direct uh, feature film directorial debut. It is her directorial debut period. And that just makes it all the more impressive because passing is a great film. And it is also a film that doesn't make you feel good. There are a lot of times where you feel unsettled by the premise of the movie and also where the movie could potentially go. But the fact that the movie keeps on guessing and also the fact that it turns in great performances by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Naga makes this even more of an impressive directorial debut by somebody who may not have experienced directing, but certainly knows what makes a great story. And that's evidenced from the story itself, as well as the very impressive and unforgettable cinematography. Passing, like the movie Belfast, is shot entirely in black and white. Actually, it's Belfast has some color moments, just like Schindler's List did, but Passing, I think, was actually more appropriate in black and white than Belfast. But I, I should say... Not that Belfast was inappropriate in black and white, but Passing is actually more of a 
genuine stylistic choice than it was in Belfast. And in Belfast, don't get me wrong, it was very fitting. But Passing follows the unexpected reunion of two high school friends, both of whom are biracial. In other words, they have uh, African and Caucasian blood within them. But their renewed acquaintance ignites a mutual obsession that threatens both of their carefully constructed realities. Let me be a little bit more specific. Tessa Thompson plays a woman who, as I said, is biracial, but like Ruth Naga in this movie, she actually, in white society, passes for a Caucasian woman, which I don't know if that would actually happen in real life because without getting too... with. Delving into a little bit of a touchy subject, there are features of Tessa Thompson that make me realize that she has African-American blood within her, not necessarily her skin tone. And that is all I'm going to say about that. And there's also it with Ruth Nega, but fortunately, I think with the black and white, you can see how Ruth Nega in this movie passes even more for a Caucasian woman, even though she has African ancestry, i.e. black ancestry, within her. But the difference is that Tessa Thompson's character, whose name is Irene, and uh, assimilates into uh, a black society, specifically the Manhattan section of Harlem, and... Ruth Nega, who plays a character by the name of Claire, assimilates into the white society, at least at first, of Lower Manhattan. Irene, Tessa Thompson's character, is married to a doctor named Brian, an African-American man who's played by Andre Holland, and Claire, Ruth Nega's character, is married to a white man named Hugh, who's played by Bill Camp. And Bill Camp is not only Caucasian, but his character is also unaware that he married a black woman. And it's very apparent when he casually utters a racial slur, which I will not repeat on the show, even though I've said it on a show a few times. I just feel very touchy about saying that word in various circumstances. He says it in front of his wife, as well as in front of Irene, apparently not realizing that Irene is also African-American. And it just goes to show you that uh, some white people can say some very stupid things about black people when they don't think that black people are around. I know I've certainly said my share, but I'm just going to move on. But the movie does explore a certain dynamic about assimilation, particularly for biracial people who pass as one race or the other, depending on where they are, where people can look at them and not give them a second thought as to the color of their skin, which certainly can see it as an advantage. But it's a good dynamic how Ruth Nega's character uses that as an advantage, and Irene doesn't, or at least she's not completely aware that she does. But things get really complicated when Claire begins to befriend Irene and her family. And I think one of the the ways, one of the strengths, the narrative strengths of this movie is you see the entire movie through Tessa Thompson's character's perspective. And by doing that, you feel vicariously 
some of the things of which Tessa Thompson's character is suspicious, which the movie doesn't outright tell you. For example, um, is the marital um, feeling between Irene and her husband, Brian, um, actually deteriorating? Or is it just in Irene's mind? Is Claire trying to assimilate not only into black society, but into Irene's family? Or is that just in Irene's mind? And the movie doesn't come out and tell you. And I really got to give it to Rebecca Hall for making that kind of uncomfortable and very touchy narrative palatable without spoon feeding the meaning of this film to the audience. And Tessa Thompson, I think here gives her best performance. And that's saying a lot considering that I have admired Tessa Thompson as an actress ever since I saw her in her first lead role in the movie, dear white people. That's a movie that also in a different day and age, uh, touched upon a very touchy subject race in America during the Obama era after the Bush era where it wasn't really the forefront of society and before the Trump era when it wasn't as contentious explicitly to uh, mainstream America. (laughs) And again, when I talk about race on this show, it's a very uncomfortable subject for me because it's just a white person talking about race. But Passing is one of those films that has touched upon the a subject that other films have touched upon before, namely people who are black who can easily assimilate into white culture and the consequences that that brings, particularly when they try to assimilate somewhere else. It's not an original story, but uh, Rebecca Hall, who actually does have African ancestry herself, and you wouldn't know that from looking at her, certainly adds some poignancy to this movie, presumably based on personal experience, even though this movie takes place in America and Rebecca Hall is British, and it takes place in the 1920s before the Depression and during the dawn of the Harlem Renaissance, uh, even though Rebecca Hall did not obviously grow up in that time or that place. It is based on a novel that's written by Nella Larson, which I have not read, and I wasn't even aware that it was based on a novel when I saw this movie, but I'm very interested in reading the novel now, but I really uh, enjoyed and appreciated the movie Passing, even though it deals with some very hard subjects that you feel fragile discussing in public, as well as also a story about somebody struggling with their own identity, even if they're not aware explicitly that they're struggling with their own identity. So Passing is a very complex film, but it's also an excellent film that gets my rating of a knockout. Rebecca Hall does an amazing job directing this film. She chose the right cinematographer. She was very correct in making this film in black and white. I feel like it was a stylish choice 
that paid off even better than Kenneth Branagh's choice in Belfast, and that was a good stylistic choice as well. But the lead performances by the likes of Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega certainly cement this in being what I think is one of the best films of the year. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is another Netflix original that premiered on Netflix on November 8th, 2021, and the movie is called Father Christmas is Back. It's that time of year where Hallmark is playing the Christmas films, even though it's not even Thanksgiving yet, but... Father Christmas is Back is not a Hallmark film. It is better and a bit less formulaic than the Hallmark Christmas films that come out that are formulaic for a reason. Number one, because they're easy to write. Number two, they are comparatively easy to make. And number three, people keep eating them up. And occasionally, I get in the mood for a Hallmark Christmas film knowing damn well that they are not the best Christmas movies, let alone the best movies out there. But I do enjoy a good Christmas film every now and then. And Father Christmas is Back is a film that is a British film. And when I was doing my What's Coming Up Next segment last week, I surmised that Father Christmas is Back was going to be a movie about uh, Father Christmas being a real person and possibly some children in the film meeting Father Christmas, kind of similar to the Polar Express. Not a movie about a dysfunctional family who are sharing Christmas together at a Yorkshire mansion. And even though the Yorkshire mansion is spacious, maybe even more spacious than Downton Abbey, there are misunderstandings that uncover the long-buried secret that tore their family apart so many years ago. So, in the movie Father Christmas is Back, it centers around a family whose literal last name is Christmas. Yeah, interesting. Um, And there have been characters in movies that have had the name Christmas, either the first name, like Denise Richards' character in The World is Not Enough, or the last name, like Jim Carrey's character in Dumb and Dumber. But these films did not associate themselves with Christmas, other than in the former case, Pierce Brosnan's James Bond making a few choice uh, sexual jokes about Christmas, which are to be expected in a James Bond film. But anyway, the central... um, story here is about um, Caroline Christmas. Uh, Actually, her name is Caroline Christmas Hope, and she's played by Nathalie Cox, 
who's married to a charismatic man by the name of Peter Hope, who's played by Chris Marshall. And Caroline, Peter, and their two children live in this very spacious Yorkshire mansion, along with their mother, uh, Elizabeth, who's played by Caroline, and Natalie's uh, stepfather, um, John Christmas, who's played by John Cleese. Her biological father, James Christmas, is played by Kelsey Grammer. And Kelsey Grammer is an American who in this movie is playing a former British citizen who moved to America and developed a British accent. But given how dignified Kelsey Grammer's way of speaking is, it actually is a bit understandable that Kelsey Grammer would play somebody who is a former Brit. Granted, when I saw him back in the 80s and 90s on Cheers, because Cheers was one of the essential shows that my family watched every week, I actually thought he was British too, uh, way back when. But <laughs> now I know from watching you know, Cheers, Frasier, and some of the other films and TV shows in which Kelsey Grammer starred that he is American but has a dignified <laughs> American accent. <laughs> um, but anyway... So Natalie has, excuse me, Caroline has three sisters. There is the glamorous Joanna, who's played by Elizabeth Hurley, who is probably in her 40s, but claims she is 35. And I think that Elizabeth Hurley is in her early 50s by now, considering it's been 24 years since she was in the first Austin Powers film. She has a good-looking boyfriend by the name of Felix, who's played by Ray Fierin, and the other two sisters are Tallulah, excuse me, Vicky Christmas, who's played by Tallulah Riley, and Paulina Christmas, who's played by Naomi Frederick. Tallulah is a free-spirited um, woman who doesn't exactly have a career and spends a lot of her days uh, traveling and sleeping on couches. And Naomi, excuse me, Paulina, who's played by Naomi Frederick, is a very odd duck who has a haircut like the Beatles did in the early 60s and is claiming she is writing her thesis on why the Beatles broke up. It's very odd to um, know why she's writing a thesis as opposed to a book if she's in school or whatnot, but they that may be... A, a divide, but either way, I thought her character was way too weird to fit into this film. And I think it would have been okay with just three sisters. You would have had the one with the family, you would have had the career woman, and you would have had the free spirited one, very similar to Hannah and her sisters, soul food, hanging up and other stories about three sisters. I really didn't think that that fourth sister was necessary, but even less necessary was James Christmas, Kelsey Grammer's character's girlfriend, Jackie, who is an American played by April Bowlby. And you're supposed to sympathize with Kelsey Grammer's character as he comes back for Christmas, despite the fact that he left his wife and his four children and is on the bad side of pretty much all his daughters. That would have made for a good conflict there in and of itself, but he's dating a girl or a woman. Yeah, actually I'd say a girl in her twenties who thinks she is staying at Buckingham palace 
and wonders as she looks around the Yorkshire mansion why Meghan Markle moved out. Ho, ho, ho. That joke is going to be dated regardless of whether or not Harry and Meghan move back to Buckingham Palace, which may or may not happen. I don't know, and I don't particularly care. But I do think that they added a few too many subplots to this film. And also, one subplot is that James Christmas, Kelly, Kelsey Grammer's, Grammer's character, is brothers with John Christmas, played by John Cleese. So after Kelsey Grammer left his wife, his brother married his sister, which is not technically incest, but that's still very unsettling. And I didn't think that that subplot needed to be there either. And John Cleese does have some funny moments. Like, for instance, Kelsey Grammer's girlfriend's uh, character is vegan. And there are some very witty one-liners that John Cleese says when I least expected them. And that made me laugh out loud. But Father Christmas is Back is one of those films that would have been less convoluted if they had reduced the subplots. And very much like A Very Brady Christmas, the uh, TV special that aired in 1988, and for a Brady Bunch fan like me was very fun to watch, you could sort of tell that every conflict in the film was going to be resolved by the end, and more or less it is. It's realistically resolved, but again, I thought that there were moments that had some loose ends that weren't tied up towards the end either. I didn't say that every single conflict in this movie was resolved, but there are moments that could have been given a proper ending, but weren't. And there were some unnecessary characters like Kelsey's Kelsey Grammer's characters, girlfriend, ditzy girlfriend in her twenties, as well as the sister Paulina, who's writing that thesis about the Beatles. I didn't think that was needed. So father Christmas is back gets my rating of a strikeout. It does have some moments where it is uh, relatable, but when these people are living in a mansion and they somehow find themselves getting on each other's nerves, even though, even though they live in a, in a spacious place that a lot of Americans would kill to live in, that kind of reduces the conflict for one thing. And also, there were so many unnecessary characters, unnecessary conflicts, and some loose ends that weren't tied up satisfactorily, even at a point in the ending credits, where they could have had an extra scene for which you would fast forward, but they didn't. So, Father Christmas's Back is a near miss, but it's still a miss. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a Disney Plus original film that is called Home Sweet Home Alone. This is a movie that is not 
quite a sequel to Home Alone, but it takes place in the same extended universe. And there's actually one member of the McAllister family in the original Home Alone who makes an appearance in this movie. He is played by the same actor. Actually, I'll just tell you who the character is. The character is Bud, uh, Buzz McAllister. He's played by Devin Raytray, who played the original uh, antagonist uh, older brother of Kevin McAllister in the first two Home Alone films. He reprises his role in this film, but that's about all that can be said positively about Home Sweet Home Alone. Because even though it is essentially a sequel to Home Alone, it's both a sequel and a remake that nobody asked for and nobody particularly wanted. And now that we have it, I still don't want it. So the central character in this movie is a kid by the name of Max Mercer, who's played by Archie Yates, who's left alone in, um, at his home in suburban Chicago accidentally by his mother, Carol Mercer, who's played by Isling Bia, who is an Irish actress. And both Archie Yates and Isling Bia keep their native accents, but... You wonder why they are in America. There's no explanation for it. Now, granted, I'm not against them being in America, but I am kind of wondering if there is a British person in America in a film, there has to be an explanation for why they're there. And the reason not, I'm not being xenophobic when I say this, Max Mercer is a British kid who's living in America. Was he raised in Great Britain? What year did he move to the United States. That's not explained at all. So the only reason he's British, it seems, is for other characters to um, call him Harry Potter because he's a British kid who wears glasses. And if they remade Harry Potter, which I wouldn't put it past um, Hollywood to remake um, Harry Potter, given that they're essentially remaking Home Alone here, I think this kid would pass for a young Harry Potter, but again, it's the same kind of story, except that the burglars who break into Max Mercer's home are well-meaning couple, uh, Jeff and Pam McKenzie, who are played by Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper. They are a middle-class family. Rob Delaney works in IT, and Ellie works as a teacher. The reason they're breaking into Max Mercer's home is because they believe that Max stole a very valuable doll of theirs. And this whole movie would have been cleared up without the booby traps that are obviously emulating Home Alone and which aren't very funny in this film, even less funny, far less funny than they were in the Home Alone films. If, they, if these parents would have gone up to this kid and asked them for the doll back, but instead they have to break into the home And through a series of very contrived misunderstandings, Max thinks that they're going to kidnap him. So he sets up all these traps like Kevin McAllister did in Home Alone, except they're not nearly as funny. And also Max Mercer in this film, again, the character Max Mercer says a lot of really tired catchphrases. Like for instance, he's throwing uh, loaded soda bottles at Ellie Kemper and he says these really cute and obnoxious cat phrases like, I, Mom said soda was bad for me. Now I know what she means. Ho, ho, ho. I hate this film. 
Even though Devin Raytray as Buzz McAllister gave this movie a tiny shred of credibility, it is an unnecessary remake of Home Alone. Nobody asked for, and now that it's here, nobody wants it. And I did not buy for a second this family who had no experience breaking into homes and were not career criminals trying to break into this kid's home and also going through these uh, Looney Tunes-like pratfalls that are just not funny because Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper, who are very funny in their own regard, do not do slapstick very well. So Home Sweet Home Alone is a movie you should avoid. If you don't have Disney+, Plus. I'm not saying don't get Disney Plus, but don't get it for this movie because it is totally not worth it. It is a flunk out. Hollywood should stop remaking or adding to these classic films. Granted, Home Alone and Home Alone 2 were not perfect films, and it's very hard for me to critique them as a movie critic in my 30s who saw Home Alone when I was eight years old in theaters like other people did. Because I know it's not a perfect film, but it was fun, and it was fitting. And yes, there are moments about it where, where it was dated, but the reason it's considered classic is because it is a very fun film if it's not particularly realistic. It's fun for what it is. For Disney, vicariously through 20th Century Fox, to remake it, it's, it's not going to work. I've been against every Home Alone sequel or remake since Home Alone 3, which came out back in 1997. I refused to see that movie when it came out. I still refuse to see it. And Home Sweet Home Alone is not sweet at all. And it also is contrived, and there's no explanation whatsoever for a British kid being in America, even though he gets along in suburban Chicago well, it doesn't make any sense that he has a British accent being presumably raised in suburban Chicago. I don't get it. I don't get why Home Sweet Home Alone was made. It should have never been made, period. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.